Good morning and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today I want to talk about uh, some recent experiences I had with um, the One Ring role-playing game. The uh, Cubicle 7 publishes this game. It's the most recent edition of the uh, effectively like a Middle-Earth uh, role-playing. I've run uh, two sessions of it uh, this past weekend after spending a bunch of time prepping and I thought I'd talk about that a bit. Um, this month has been quite busy just because of the sheer amount of um, charity sessions that I'm getting uh, done uh, this month. Uh, I, For those uh, who are regular listeners, you may know, but for those who aren't aware, um, one of the rewards that uh, I offer for uh, donations through the Heroes Save Villages campaign that we have on our YouTube channel uh, is um, that I'll run a game for you. I'll run a four-hour session of whatever game you want with whoever you want, uh, my friends, your friends, whatever. Um, and uh, I unfortunately had difficulty scheduling one of the sessions, uh, which pushed everything else back. So I'm finally, uh, I'm not doing the same, I'm not adopting the same approach next year for the charity games, but I, um, I'm finally going to be done them all. I'll, I'll be caught up in all my charity games from uh, the very late last year and all the way through this year. Uh, but it has meant that I'm writing a lot of sessions. And for those charity sessions, I do t- uh, put a, a a fair amount more work into them than uh, what I do for my normal uh, sessions just because it's uh, it's a one-shot and I want to make sure it's worth the uh, people are getting value for the money they're donating to SOS Children's Villages International. So um, anyway, um, uh, let's, um, let's get to the episode. So the session that I ran on, um, it, at the time of recording, I ran one uh, four-and-a-half-hour session on Saturday and then I ran another one, actually, that was about three hours on Sunday. And uh, the donor had, uh, for this particular one, was my buddy Arlen Walker uh, from um, the Cows from Powis. I'm sorry, it's the, uh, that's his Twitter handle, uh, Live from, from Pelham's Wasteland um, podcast. And the, the thing that I, um, uh, well, what, what Arlen had requested was uh, the, that I run the One Ring for him. And the One Ring, the role-playing game as written, uh, is designed to be played between the period um, of the events of The Hobbit and the start of The Lord of the Rings. So it's this kind of uh, interbook period where there's a bunch of things going on and each of the, well the source book, the, the core rulebook itself uh, deals with the region um, called Wilderland, which I believe is Western. I've got all the source books for it, so I, I'm confused what is about what, but basically most of Northern um, it's, it's the period or the region called a region uh, and then also the uh, east side of the Misty Mountains from uh, the Misty Mountains through to Middle Earth up to Lake Town up to Erebor, the Lonely Mountain and then all the way down to the uh, Rittermark to uh, where the Riders of Rohan live. Uh, they've got source books for all of those and each of the source books has a uh, setting component to it that, that sets up a, basically a sandbox setting for you to play in and then also a uh, linked campaign. Now they don't do that for necessarily all of them, but that's basically the way they've structured their uh, their products. And um, I uh, I've heard nothing but amazing things about them. And then um, after he made the donation, Arlen offered to run the game for me once to uh, so I could get a sense of what the game's about and how how to approach it. And I had a lot of fun uh, playing it. I played a uh, goofy. Uh, Hobbit uh, named uh, Rufus Burroughs, and I got to do a silly West Country accent, or at least my, my best imitation of it, um, and I uh, I had a, a ton of fun about it, and I, I 
was getting very, oh, I was very excited to run uh, the session for, for Arlen as well too. And then we had difficulty scheduling it just because of uh, another uh, uh, game that we kept having scheduled and then it would fall through and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but anyway, um, so what, what I told him is that um, uh, to do something special rather than just running a, you know, a session that uh, is set in the default time, I did what I want to do, which is to make it make the game work for the way I want. So <laughs> rather than setting it in that period, we had uh, Arlen's one-shot set in the period immediately before the Gondorian Kinstrife, which takes place about 1,500 years before uh, the Lord of the Rings. And I uh, I was, I had been interested in that period ever since I read about it in uh, the appendices in uh, Lord of the Rings. It just struck me, for those who aren't familiar, it's a, peri- it's a period where one of the Gondorian kings had ended up marrying a uh, woman from uh, the Kingdom of the Ravanian, which at the time... Uh, was it, it's effectively it's the same people the same um, you know uh, people who will end up becoming the Rohan, but um, the uh, king is one uh, King Valakar marries a uh, Rovanian woman. He has a family with her, and when it comes time for him or his son to take over, there are people in the kingdom of Gondor who feel that he is not because he's not of pure Dunedain stock, and therefore not really a pure descendant of fallen or downfallen Numenor, then he's not appropriate for a king. I mean, I mean, part of that has some pretty, you know, racist overtones to it. And also part of it has a, um, a I guess, the bona fide concern that every king beforehand used to live to 250 years old or something like that. And the concern was, was partly that the new king, if he's got uh, the blood of lesser men, as far as uh, such things go in, in the Middle Earth setting, uh, then he would not live as long as what the other um, what the other kings did. So this agitation led to a period of about 20 years of um, uh, civil war. Uh, the king was the, the king who ended up becoming uh, King uh, Eldakar uh, was deposed and he uh, a replacement king called Castamir was put in place and then uh, that was the way things were until um, Eldakar came back and cast him out and then became king again and then when he passed on uh, one of his sons uh, became the um, the new king um, however uh, interestingly enough the um, legacies that uh, or the lineage of kings that uh, um, Tolkien included in the Lord of the Rings, it counted Castamir as a bona fide king. Uh, and uh, anyway, so that, that's sort of the, the backdrop of the thing. And I always thought that was pretty interesting just because, and then the, as I got older and the more I, you know, the more I understood about uh, civil insurrections and, and civil wars and things like that, the more I thought about uh, how compelling of a period that could be and then uh, be to, to play in. And um, originally, those plans had been hatched with other versions of uh, Middle Earth role playing. So the, this was with the Middle Earth role playing um, role playing game Merp, uh, published by Iron Crown Enterprises, and then uh, later with uh, the version of the Lord of the Rings uh, role playing game published by um, Decipher. And uh, I, I never got a chance to get to look at the table. And then um, the One Ring came out, and. I'd had periods where I'd been intrigued with a lot of the mechanics of the One Ring, and the books themselves were beautiful and really great source books for uh, for Middle Earth, you know, all things Middle Earth. Uh, and but I never, you know, it's just not a game I got to the table. I, I, to be honest, thought that people wouldn't 
really enjoy playing a Tolkien-esque thing. I wasn't sure what I would do with that. But then I had a chance to play it, and I got a much better idea of what I wanted to do with it. So I, I you know, wrote this session with the guys playing. I wanted to play up some of the tensions of the period. I knew uh, that in, in the during the Gondorian kinstrife, it doesn't seem like the elves, the dwarves, the hobbits. I mean, the hobbits are kind of forgotten people until the time of the War of the Ring anyway, apart from... You know, like archers showing up to help the king of uh, Arthedain at one point. Um, it may have been the kingdom or the archers helping the kingdom of Arnor, actually, rather than uh, Arthedain. But in any event, the uh, uh, the hobbits were out, the dwarves were out, the uh, elves were out, and a lot of the other people, the, the humans um, were, human cultures were not really part of this world. So it left me with thinking about, well, how can I make an interesting story where I'm not having elves, dwarves, and whatever else? And that was answered pretty quickly when I started thinking about the fun role-playing challenges that will come with people playing, um, for one, um, members of the of the Kingdom of Ravanian. Uh, it's, it's implied that when uh, the king came down, when Valakar came back from the Kingdom of Ravanian with his wife, that he brought with him a bunch of, um, uh, what do you call it? Oops, someone's not happy here. Uh, brought with him a bunch of uh, nobles uh, from uh, the Ravanian. So I liked the idea of people growing up uh, in the Ravanian, uh, or from the Ravanian growing up in Osgiliath, which is the capital at the time of the Kinstrife. And uh, so that was a couple, you know, people playing those who may get some, you know, racism cast their way by uh, uh, some of the. Um, uh, the locals, in particular the Dunedan um, uh, nobles who would end up uh, basically going against the uh, the rightful king. Uh, so that would be interesting. I also realized I could I could very easily adapt the um, what do you call it? Uh, the advanced cultures they've got in uh, one ring. Uh, there's certain cultures that are just, you know, if you're playing a certain kind of elf, like an elf from Rivendell, uh, or you're playing a, uh, a Dunedan, one of the rangers, the, your, those characters should be should reflect that they shouldn't necessarily have to be balanced with, say, a hobbit from the Shire. doesn't mean that they can't, the characters can't still all have great, fun things to do in the game. It's just that, you know, you don't balance the stats. It doesn't make sense. The, the other character, the, those characters will just start with more things. They've got more history behind them. Uh, so anyway, I, I, uh, I stole the, um, and then adapted the stuff for the Dunedain to, from the ranges of the north to make the Dunedain. Uh, and, uh, while I didn't think I could have the characters play, you know, say the, you know, Aldicar, you know, uh, who's called, I think, uh, Vinyarian at the time? No. Uh, he's called something different at the time. He's got a Ravanian name. But, uh, anyway, the, couldn't p- play the Crown Prince, couldn't play the, his son either, because I thought, uh, like, with the way the timeline works, that, that character would have been at least 150 or 160 years old. I didn't want them playing characters who already had uh, a full life behind them. Um, however, the grandchildren, the grandchild, the great-grandchildren of the current king, of King Valakar, and the grandchildren of the soon-to-be king, uh, Eldakar, that stuff, that was valid. Those characters were only about 40 years old, and as far as, you know, Dunedain uh, go, then uh, that was a good, you know, that was a good way to... Uh, to um, a good way to approach having uh, characters who have a strong connection to the throne and a, a big stake in the uh, Gondorian kinstrife without actually having to be, um, you know, like old, crazily overpowered characters. They were characters who could still advance the way that uh, the campaign 
um, you know, the way a campaign would normally develop. Because the One Ring role-playing game has a really, really great uh, organic way of developing uh, characters. Your, your characters um, gain experience or advancement points by doing things. You know, you gain, the more you use a, a wider variety of, of abilities and skills and stuff like that, the faster your character is going to advance, the more you're going to stock up that stuff. And they separate out combat stuff like weapon skills from regular skills. So you can, and one of them advances much faster. So you, you don't have to worry about your characters outpacing the, um, uh, the, the game. Like they're not going to grow more powerful, out-level, you know, in a level-based system, they're not going to out-level the content before they get a chance to actually enjoy that stuff. So, uh, and I mean, the more I did prep for it, the more I thought about it, the more I was, you know, pouring through Tolkien lore, the more I started think, seeing like, you know, I, this actually might be a really, really cool ongoing campaign. So I really wanted to make sure I, I didn't shoot myself in the foot and make it so that I couldn't really run that kind of campaign if I did enjoy the campaign. The, the one shot as much as I thought I would. So, and then finally, also in the, the um, the one of the supplements for One Ring has the stats for the men of Gondor, uh, men of Minas Tirith. And at the time of the Kinstrife, Minas Tirith is is still still Minas Anor. It's not an actual city. It's a it's a tower. It's one of two towers, Minas Anor and Minas Ithil, that are at opposite ends of kind of a, a gap between um, uh, Mordor and the uh, White Mountains. And um, Osgiliath was the capital, but I, you know, I could very easily just say, all right, well, Osgiliath is the, um, uh, it's a man of Osgiliath and use the stats as written. And then I stole some of the things from there, like in um, the One Ring, one of the things you get to, to pick as your character advances are uh, things called cultural blessings and cultural virtues, uh, or sorry, cultural rewards. Cultural rewards are... Um, items, like things that are of value to your people, to the, the culture that you come from. And uh, uh, virtues are things that people, they're like, you know, uh, racial stats, effectively, or racial abilities, uh, but from a culture. And uh, I, I could use a lot of the ones, the ranger ones didn't really make sense for a lot of the Dunedan because they're not wandering around, you know, Middle Earth or region or whatever. They, they were um, wandering, not wandering, they were part of the court. So i basically use uh, the stuff for Men of Gondor or Men of Minas Tirith as a guide for how to do my Dunedain and then I also had the Men of um, um, uh, Osgiliath as the uh, as the kind of default way of, of modeling those characters. So what it allowed me to do is I had some common people who were the Men of Osgiliath. I had one character that was that which filled that kind of Tolkien role of the everyman. Um, I had two grandchildren uh, or great grandchildren of the uh, of the king who were descended through, uh, you know, who had that, uh, that Ravanian blood in them. And I had two guys who were Ravanian characters. Uh, one of them was a younger guy. So, cause I, I had a feeling that the one player would want to play kind of a young hothead. And the other one was a, an old man, an older guy who was actually friends with the character's father. And the reason I, I wanted to do that is because knowing how long I, I was thinking a lot about how you know how, what the life of the Dunedain would be like, because they were they they live so long. You know they would certainly um, outlive uh, their friends and their childhood friends would uh, you know would would become old men before they uh, the Dunedain ever got out of their prime. And I wanted to explore that a bit too. So I had this one character who's kind of this crotchety old guy who traveled around a ton with the one character's father and then now had been traveling with that character for several years as well so he'd gone from a child all the way up to being an old man 
um, you know, knowing this, this family so intimately. And uh, one of the things that um, the One Ring role-playing game does just exceptionally well is it really gets you, it gives mechanical heft to the, um, to the heart and the, you know, I don't know, the, the real um, earnest emotional core of your character. Uh, you know, it, there's uh, these things called traits that are in there that are kind of like, uh, they're very similar to what's in some story games where they can, you can use them to just get an automatic success on things or to, to do things, you know, retroactively do something that your character, it would make sense that they could do or to, um, um, uh, what else? Or to get, uh, you know, there's a, me- a mechanical advantage to it as well too for getting XP, but that's not really the super thematic. But um, what what it uh, what it felt like when I played it the first time too is that you know my character who was this little hobbit character who really couldn't fight who really couldn't you know I, I did not build him to be a combat monster I didn't build him to be a, like expert in court and whatnot but he was so much fun to role play and uh, um, I really felt like I got into his head and and I could and that was guiding and I guess more accurately the heart and I was gui- guiding how I was playing him and it made for some really fun scenes and I think some really some powerful scenes as well too with it, with that character that the that uh, the lore master that Arlen had set up for me and I wanted to be able to do that as well so I, I had it in mind that I wanted to make sure that there was a good connection and each of the characters had a clear idea of what they cared about and uh, so that was the setup for it that was the setup for the campaign and then we or the one shot session and then we ran it and man oh man uh like four and a half hours flew by and we had uh one combat scene that was very truncated just because we were running we were over time and we were running out of time for one of the players but um man oh man oh man it is one of the favorite my favorite sessions i've run uh for any game certainly this year uh and boy it's up there with the best like i just keep thinking about it and keep going back to to watch it uh where and I'm not trying to, uh, like, sort of I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. Uh, what I mean by that is just, like, everything that I had planned kind of played out the way I had expected. Um, the players responded to it the way that they, uh, that I, I had kind of had hoped they would as well, too. And the surprises I had in mind were, you know, came across as surprises, which was great. And the vast majority of the session was all just role-playing. You know, like we made some some dice rolls as well too, but it was just some incredibly intense role playing, and there was story development that was happening throughout the course of that. So it wasn't just aimless playing in character stuff. Like there were characters were uncovering things, and they were directing things, and and uh, it was just great. I mean, like I we set some stuff in 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 place that would um, would pay off if this became a larger campaign, but still made for some hopefully some fun, interesting deep dive, you know, bites uh, of lore, uh, or deep cuts, I should say, in, um, uh, in the session, and uh, I, I, I enjoyed it so much that I ran a, another session of it, we made characters and played a bit of the first part of this car- adventure from the Bree source book on uh, Sunday, in our regular Sunday session, we found ourselves down a, a character, or down a character, down a player, so we couldn't play what we had planned, and we decided to run this again, uh, and that was also just a crap ton of fun. Like the whole session was them going around in, in the prancing pony in the in the common room of the prancing pony. Uh, the guys rolled up a, a hobbit from the Shire who was out on an, an adventure. A man of Bree 
uh, who was uh, kind of had encountered something that had changed his life. You know, he's had it in his mind now. He wanted to learn more about the rangers and, and get to become a ranger. And the last one was an elf from Mirkwood who was traveling. And, um, yeah, it was just, you know, another one where it was just, it was so much fun uh, to, to run the game. And for both of them, because the One Ring role-playing, if you're not familiar with it, one of the things that it, where, it, where it significantly differs from other games is how it approaches uh, gameplay and how it um, separates or divides the different stages of gameplay into different stages. You know what? Maybe this, this section is already up to almost 20 minutes long, so maybe what I'll do is... Uh, the, so that's the adventures that I ran. I ran one that was set in the period of the Gondorian Kinstrife just beforehand, the year before, actually, in the year 1432, Third Age. And then I ran one that was in Bree. And um, I had two of the same players from our One Ring, from our, uh, one ring session, uh, or, or our uh, Kinstrife session, uh, on uh, the Sunday one, so he had already, he, it was fresh in his mind as well too, but one was someone who had never played it, didn't have the books, and we kind of made his character and dove in. Um, yeah, no, I just, boy, oh boy, it's, those sessions have been really sticking with me, so um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll leave, that's what's happened in the sessions, let me talk about the one ring and some of the fifth, my observations about it uh, in the next section. So now let's talk about the actual game itself. Um, so the One Ring uh, uses as a task resolution a combination of D12s and D6s. Uh, you always roll a D12, which they call a feet dice, and then you'll roll, um, if you've got points in something in a skill, you will roll a number of uh, D6s, which they call success dice. Now, the difference between the regular, you can use a standard uh, dice in order to do all that stuff, in order to make those rolls, um, or you can use a custom dice. And then what what they do in the custom dice is they sub out the eleven and the twelve on the d uh, on the d twelve uh, for an eye of Sauron and a Gandalf rune. So you have a Gandalf rune and you have the eye of Sauron, and those. It's only on uh, certain stages of the game where that has, uh, for rules is written, where those have an effect. But in, in uh, travel, for instance, if you roll an Eye of Sauron, uh, it, uh, it's trouble. You know, bad things happen. You'll have an, uh, a complication. I can't remember offhand what they call it, but it's some kind of bad thing that happens in the course of your travel. Uh, if you roll a Gangdolf rune, then uh, something good can happen. Uh, rolling a Gangdolf uh, also is an automatic success on, uh, on skill checks regardless of what stage you're in. Uh, so even if you're awful and you've got no training at something uh, and the difficulty uh, target number is really, really high, you can still roll a Gangdolf rune and you're good to go. Um, the D6s are a little different as well too um, because on a, a roll of six, um, when you're rolling your, your task resolution, rolling a six on one of your success dice, the D6s, that uh, denotes a great success. Rolling two sixes represents an extraordinary success. So the, um, you know, what, what the, the consequence of that is, is that even on a, even though you can get an automatic success when you're rolling with your, uh, with just a, a bare feet dice, you know, just a D12, 
Um, you can never get anything more than just a regular success. You can't get a great success absent any other kind of ability. You can, uh, can't get an extraordinary success. You need to be actually skilled in order to get those successes because you need those success dice. There's also a, uh, a mechanic called hope, which is a, uh, a way of, a, of kind of the players having some agency over the, um, the dice results uh, for this here. So um, what uh, that allows them to do is if they um, uh, if they roll a d uh, or rather if they don't succeed in their task, uh, what they can do is then spend a point of hope, uh, and then they can add their uh, attribute. Uh, there, there's three attributes in the game. There is body, uh, heart, and wits. I believe are what they're called, and. Uh, each of the different uh, skills is uh, is uh, related to one of those things, and then also there is uh, something called uh, favored uh, stats, which is a, in the first edition is a, um, a slightly higher version of your stat. And if you are favored in a skill, you get to add that better uh, version, that better that higher amount to your um, to your result when you roll or when you spend a, a point of hope. So. Um, what that uh, and starting characters will end up with uh, there is I believe uh, 18 different skills and there are maybe it's it's, it's between 18 and uh, 21 different skills and then there are um, of those you'll start off with being favored in four of them uh, and then yeah your stats the way that you sort of customize your character is by picking the a starting background which will give you the base stats and then you get to uh, add three to one of them, two to another, and one to the last one to generate your favored stats. So you can really choose to lean into your strengths, or you can mitigate your weaknesses, or whatever you want. Um, and what else here? That is the base... Uh, oh, the way they don't have um, hit points in the game, they have something called fatigue. And fatigue is a, uh, a measure of how much, you know, how much punishment you can take before it starts affecting your performance. And it has a fairly clever way of, of modeling also with your encumbrance. Like your encumbrance generates a certain amount of fatigue for your character. And then in addition, when you travel, you can generate fatigue as well. And there's other stuff that can potentially generate it. But those are the main two sources. Either you're carrying your stuff or you're getting failures on your travel rolls and you're generating uh, fatigue. When your fatigue is equal to your um, uh, encumbrance and or your... Uh, not your encumbrance, your endurance, uh, then you become what's called weary. And when you are weary, uh, that means that those success dice, those D6s that you roll, you ignore uh, the results of a 1, 2, or a 3. So it means that you only really, you know, like the good results you get on that, you still get to apply those. It's This is the desperate moment of uh, a really wounded character smashing someone or, or, you know, getting through and getting that success. Um, but um, it means that on average you're going to get a lot lower of a result, and I kind of I, I really like that. I think it's a really, you know, uh, um, to read it you might think that it feels very swingy, where you're either going big or going home when your character is weary. But to be honest, that fits for the for the the setting and, and for the sensibilities of the of the Middle Earth setting. I really love that. Um, and um, there's also a, a mechanic called um, Shadow. And shadow is your character's growing, kind of um, you know, it's it's the dark feelings that that come from um, the exposure to dangerous circumstances, to the shadow itself, to the enemy, you know, Sauron, and, and uh, the other enemies of the Free Peoples. 
Um, if your shadow uh, reaches your current uh, hope, then you become miserable. And uh, there are special consequences that can come from when you roll an Eye of Sauron on a defense, on a uh, skill check. And then you become a, uh, basically, uh, you go into shadow um, madness. Uh, and that is dictated by your calling. Your calling is kind of like your broad archetype. You have uh, three different features that make up your character. You have your culture. Um, you have your specific background that you choose, which dictates your um, one of your favorite skills and your uh, starting uh, attributes. And then you also pick a calling, and your calling is your... Uh, is like I said, those broad uh, archetypical uh, abilities, and that that's things like scholar or uh, treasure hunter or warden. You know, if you're a def- defector or defender, slayer, um, and uh, yeah. So I mean, the um, that's the basic mechanics of the stuff. So you've got these interesting, um, some of these interesting mechanics that are are kind of uh, constantly in flux. Like you're, you know, depending on what you're carrying and how much. You know how much that your travel is is um, bearing you down. Um, your stats are very much in flux over the course of play, which feels, I think, feels really um, dynamic at the table. You know, like you're not because your characters are. It's really hard to get your characters back to square one, with both in terms of shadow and in terms of your uh, your uh, fatigue. Uh, it just feels. I don't know. I mean, it definitely gives characters the feeling that they are on, on an adventure and it's taking a slow and gradual toll on them. The other way of characters getting injured is through something called uh, the wounded mechanic. And what wounding is, is uh, every attack you've got... With... So I accidentally... Uh, my stupid fat thumbs hit uh, the button and I, I uh, stopped recording when I was halfway through talking and I did not realize that that had happened. <laughs> so... I'll carry on from here. So what, what I was saying is that uh, the attacks also have something called the um, uh, an edge. And what the edge is, is if you roll on your feet dice, on your D12, you roll that number or higher, uh, then your target needs to make a wounded check. And the wounded check is against the wounding number of that attack. And the way they roll that is they roll the uh, feet dice, so D12, plus a number of D6s based on their armor. And your armor is directly related to your um, true encumbrance. So the heavier you are, the more crap you're carrying around, the more armor you got. And each, uh, basically, it's either, I can't remember if it's, a, it's each three fatigue or each... Um, for fatigue, but one of those two grants you a, a D6. Uh, so then you roll those dice, you roll it against the, the wounded check or the wounding number. If uh, you succeed, then you uh, you aren't wounded. If you fail, then you begin wounded. If you're already wounded, that means you're down and unconscious and dying. If you are not wounded, then you gain the wounded stat. But if you then lose enough endurance to knock you out, then you are... Um, then you're all likewise dying. So wounded is, is no small thing. It's, and it's a cool way to co- sort of track the um, a different element, that, that sort of dramatic moment where someone gets a lucky stroke in, as opposed to the gradual wearing down that your, um, your encumbrance um, or your uh, endurance uh, represents. Okay, so now let's talk about the, uh, the mechanics that are at play in the different uh, sections of the game. So... I had mentioned that this game has three different uh, subsections, or sub, or really four different kind of sub mechanics. 
that are at play. Uh, one is, is obviously combat, tactical combat. There's one that they call encounters, which is really just social encounters. Or, uh, yeah, I mean, social encounters is really the way. It's, it's you know, audiences before grand men and grand women. And uh, it is um, the... Um, meetings with, you know, riddles with Gollum in the cave. It's, it's that kind of stuff. It's any social interaction that's going to have some structure to it where you're going to be able to judge success or failure or, or you know, progressions uh, there towards. Um, you also have uh, travel, uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously a key part of uh, Tolkien's works of uh, going from one place to another and having interesting things happen along the way. Um, and then finally, there is the fellowship phase. And I'm not going to talk so much about that because I haven't actually had it to come into play in any of the sessions I've run so far. But um, it is, it's just worth noting that there is a, a whole part of the game that is dedicated towards that time between sessions, between adventures of what's happening at home, which gives the, the game in the same way that I, I imagine uh, like long-term Ars Magica play or um, long-term Pendragon play would give it that vibe of, um, you know, of progression over time. Uh, the uh, the interesting thing with each of those subsystems as well is that there are completely different... I, I shouldn't say completely different, but there are very different rules that are uh, used throughout each of those. You know, like the, um, uh, the, the mechanics that are at uh, play for tactical combat are very crunchy. Like, they're very regimented by where what stance your character is in, in terms of how engaged they are in combat. That will set t target numbers for your uh, difficulty to hit your uh, adversaries. It will also set the, um, it will also set what special maneuvers you can do, because uh, there's different maneuvers you can do, like rallying allies or defending an ally or things like that, trying to intimidate foes with your awesome presence. Uh, all of that is set up, so that's that's tactical combat. Um, the social encounters are are interestingly the, the loosest, uh, and it, it really uh, depends. Uh, it gives a, a in the core rulebook, it gives a, a very broad framework for how to structure them. Um, but they remind me an awful lot of the skill challenges from Fourth Edition D and D. Uh, and it, to be honest, in the core rulebook, it has some of the same problems that it had in Fourth Edition, where with skill challenges, where there wasn't a lot of guidance on what you, how to put those into play, but with the amount of uh, source books and, and um, adventures that are now out, you certainly, it's easy to figure out uh, what, you know, what those should be, and I've had a lot of fun in, in those scenes. Um, and then the final one is travel, and travel is, uh, has two different components to it. It has, uh, for one, everyone makes a roll on their travel skill, which represents the toll that traveling over land takes on them. And um, you gain fatigue that way based on how much, what time of year you're traveling, which is how heavy your equipment is, or your equipment, your uh, traveling gear. Uh, and then there is the, uh, if you roll an Eye of Sauron on the court, in the course of uh, travel, then you have a hazard that comes up. And that can be things like a random encounter, like a, a combat encounter, or it could be that you've had to double back and you're going to have to make another check. And usually it is key to different uh, roles in the party for travel. Those roles are, um, uh, geez, I'm going to forget what they are now, but there's there's different roles like scout, um, hunter, um, gosh, okay, lookout man, and I can't remember what the other one is, but uh, basically what, what it is is when you roll a hazard, then the, the lore master uh, makes a roll to see which uh, particular role is affected by that. I'm saying roll and roll twice here. It rolls a dice 
to uh, determine which of the travel roles uh, is affected by this hazard. And then um, you can customize something for where you're traveling. A lot of the books offer you um, explanations for or uh, examples of what those hazards could be for specific areas. Like, you know, if you're traveling through the mountains near uh, Kirith Ungol, you know, probably going to be some giant spiders in there. Uh, similarly, work Mirkwood might have spiders as well, too. Um, whereas, you know, traveling in the, uh, the, you know, the hills in the northern part of the Misty Mountains near where uh, Angbad might be, then, then it might be, you know, fell men uh, that you will be, um, you'll be encountering. So, um, yeah, and then similarly, you know, there may, the, you may also have non-combat encounters as well, too, as, as a hazard. Things like, um, you know, your, um, the, the, the mountain, uh, you know, when Karadras turned on, on our heroes. So that's how the, uh, the travel uh, section uh, works on it. And it's, as you can tell, like, there's, there's really, there's very different uh, sub-mechanics that are at play for each of those different sections. And it's, it's funny because, well, it's interesting because we were talking about this after the session with uh, both of the groups that I had, uh, I'd run this for, for the one-shot, uh, charity one-shot, and then also for the, uh, the pickup game that I ran on uh, the Sunday afterwards, uh, where we were playing in Bree. Um, and, you know, like there, there is, um, so I was talking about, or got me thinking about uh, the old Shadowrun game, because Shadowrun, up until third edition, uh, or up until fourth edition, I should say, up from first through third, it always had uh, a a bunch of different uh, sub mechanics for for what you know for the different things you you did in that game. If you're not familiar with uh, Shadowrun, I mean, basically, if you think of Tolkien meets Gibson, uh, that is the game. It's cyberpunk meets fantasy, and uh, in that game, there is magic, there are hack, there's hacking, there's uh, remote control of vehicles through rigging, there's combat. Uh, and then there is uh, social interaction as well, too, social rules for tracking uh, your web of contacts and so forth. And the, the game used to have, up until 4th edition, the game had different mechanics for each of those different uh, areas. And, I mean, that was, that was seen as a flaw in the game that, like, you needed to learn, yeah, especially if you were running the game, you needed to learn so many different rules that had very different, um, different, implement, like, diff- different implementations of the basic you know, roll uh, a number of d6s over a certain number. Uh, you know, if you had mastered the decking rules, that wouldn't necessarily tell you anything about, you know, firing a gun in, in a full, uh, fully automatic mode. Uh, so, or similarly, you know, if you knew all about decking, or uh, rigging, rather, controlling, uh, you know, drones and so forth, uh, it would tell you nothing about summoning a spirit, uh, because they, they had a totally different way of, of running the sub-mechanics. Uh, since that edition... Uh, we've seen three more editions of uh, of Shadowrun come out, and each of them has streamlined the uh, the mechanics. So you're you know they uh, systems that drive each of those different actions. They're still different, but they've got a lot more in common than they have different. So it's easier for players to sw- and for I guess game masters to run the game, and for players to switch between different roles, playing different characters. You're not having a sit down and read, you know, 20 or 25 pages of rules just to figure out how to play your character. But um, the thing, the cost that comes with that, though, is the lack of flavor, you know? Um, and, I mean, there at the time of recording, there's been a very heated thing going around on Twitter about whether system matters in games. And, I mean, I just, 
I think that if someone thinks that system doesn't matter, then they're they're not running the games uh, according to the rules. Because if you don't think that you have a different play experience at the table when you have different systems at play, then you don't play enough systems. Uh, you know, to be frank, I think it's it's a ridiculous uh, you know thing to even just looking at the flat amount of time it takes to go through combat in various editions of Dungeons and Dragons, selecting only one game. You compare the length of time that a skirmish will take in D and D in A D and D versus fifth versus fourth, uh, you will have a dramatically different experience and a different play experience at the table. So to say that, well, you know, mechanics don't matter uh, is is not you're not running the game according to the rules, then, or at least you're not recognizing that each of them has a, engenders a different play experience at the table. But that's an aside. I don't want to get lost in that. But the so obviously, you know, my little rant there tells you what side of the fence I am on with respect to this system matters thing. And I think system, for the reason that uh, I think because I think system matters, then this gives you a very different experience in each of those three different sections. You know, travel feels distinct from um, from uh, encounters, from social encounters, which feels different from combat encounters. And I like that an awful lot. I think it gives a really good, uh, does a good job of highlighting, you know, what scene you're in and, and putting everyone in the frame of mind of what we're doing in this scene. That's not to say you can't talk your way out of a fight or things like that, but, you know, if you're having to engage the combat rules, that means you're no longer in the social encounters, right? You're not in that section anymore. You've transitioned out of that. You've been unsuccessful at avoiding, or you've been successful at inciting a uh, combat encounter. And fourth edition D and D used to it did something sort of similar to this. Like their the combat rules were very different from uh, what any other part of the game is. But this is so much more elegant and so much um, it runs so much better at the table and, and is certainly much more um, it, it is much more evocative of the experience of uh, you know uh, of a Tolkien story. So so that's the uh, the overarching. Uh, structure for how what you know what's going to be happening in your games. Um, maybe I'll I'll end this section here and then just conclude with some closing thoughts on um, on uh, the One Ring role playing game. Okay, so um, at the time of recording, it has been about a week, a uh, little more than a week since I last uh, since I ran uh, my two sessions of the One Ring. I ran that one with um, set during the or just before the Gondorian Kinstrife. And I ran one that was set in Bree, uh, around like between uh, the time of the Hobbit and the time of the Lord of the Rings. And uh, I've also had an opportunity to run a couple other games, uh, as is you know often the uh, the case of my my schedule. I ran uh, PF two uh, on my Friday game. I ran a charity one shot of the Legend of the Five Rings uh, role playing game as well, the newest one from Fantasy Flight, which had a very story mechanic, and I thought that a lot of the uh, things that I had learned or had in mind from One Ring would carry over to that, and it, it did to a degree. Um, but uh, looking back on this with the benefit of, you know, a week's hindsight, what I can say is that the One Ring is one of the best games that I've run in uh, 2019. Uh, I think that uh, I'm fortunate, or have been fortunate in the last little while, as I work my way through my checklist of games that I really want to get to the table so I can do a proper, you know, assessment, uh, overview and uh, review of it. And 
I, boy, like, uh, it is, uh, it's a really, really solid game, and, and I want to kind of, beyond just, just, you know, saying good, I want to try and give some context to that, so you can uh, judge whether it's a game uh, that you might enjoy yourself. Um, the One Ring, uh, the things that I like about it, for one, I like that it suits, uh, it has been designed to suit the source material. Uh, it is designed to play Tolkien-esque uh, adventures. So that is really good. So in, in the in the idea that or in the in the uh, if the goal was to create a you know something that fits the experience of the uh, of the source material, then it, it, it succeeds in that sense. Um, however, I don't think I was talking about the when we were talking about Tolkien this uh, this game and how it reflects Tolkien as compared to other games that are based on source material, like say uh, Call of Cthulhu. Um, in my mind, because a lot of the Call of Cthulhu adventures and, and the play is you're going to be encountering Lovecraftian monsters and, and facing Lovecraftian, you know, plots and blah, blah, blah. Um, those, because of the ubiquitous uh, presence of, of uh, Lovecraft and his creations in, uh, in fiction, those things feel, to me, they feel very played out. Like, I, I just, it's not scary to me. It may be fun to fight deep ones or things like that, but it's not scary. You know, because we, we have known, I've known about what these things are since I was a teenager. So, um, what that experience, if you're going to run it in that way, that's not how you have to run Call of Cthulhu, mind you. Uh, but if you are running it that way, it is more of a theme park where you're going through and you're seeing your favorite things, but you're really kind of on rails as to what's going on and what's going to be involved. Um, you know, like what, what things you're going to see. You're not going to see necessarily a vampire, you know, uh, unless it is something that is a specific... Lovecraftian twist on that, you know. Um, so it, you're seeing kind of the greatest hits. Uh, that does not feel like that's the case with the One Ring. In contrast, in the One Ring, you can very much make your own stories. You know, your characters are their own heroes of their own uh, epic, uh, which is great. And it, the game with its uh, different sub mechanics um, or the different stages, you know, travel and combat and uh, encounters, and then uh, the fellowship phase, the downtime phase. All of that gives you an op, like gives you ways of focusing your hero's um, actions and you making interesting decisions game-wise in each of those stages to simulate that experience, to make it really feel like you're on a Tolkien uh, epic, but a unique one, not one that just is like, and now you're fighting Gollum, and now you're fighting this. You know, um, So I think focusing on the elements of a Tolkien-esque story as opposed to just uh, the adversaries, I think makes for a, a much more satisfying uh, well, I, I don't know, a much more unique, I think, or original uh, experience uh, than say the, um, what do you call it, than what uh, Call of Cthulhu does. And that's not to say that Call of Cthulhu is a bad game. I love Call of Cthulhu, so please don't take this uh, as, as comment as uh, criticizing that game necessarily. Um, but uh, so that's one thing I really like about it. I love that you characters are um, works in progress constantly. You know that uh, the the characters will be um, in, you know gaining shadow and they'll be gaining um, uh, f uh, fatigue or yeah uh, fatigue as they go along as well too. And um, they yeah I mean they'll be suffering wounds and they they're your characters aren't pristine as they travel, which feels very appropriate for a Middle-Earth uh, role-playing game. And also really fun. Like, one of the things I love about my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea campaign that's now been going on for almost a year um, is because 
my heroes have been like they're they're hard beaten heroes like are hard traveled heroes they are uh, they've gone through some stuff you know uh, over the course of, of our campaign and I they have been changed by the experience of that and I love that I love that uh, the one ring gives a good reason for that or a good um, a good experience uh, of, of playing through that type of story and the um, the rules do a really terrific job of in, of encouraging that type of play as well, you know, or that type of experience, you get an oppor- or you get a, um, you know, an opportunity to try and work the system, as it were, by using skills, you know, in different scenes to try and get those advantage points. So you can then you spend those points to advance your character. So it's it's cool that that's in the hands of the characters too. It's not just a get to the end of a story, I'll get some XP, or, or end of a session and get some XP, or get to the end of a, um, what do you call it? Uh, get to the end of a, uh, uh, what am I saying here? Or a story, or a, hit a story point and get a milestone. It, it's it's cool that it's in the hands to a degree of, of the player to try and, and get that, you know, the the stuff they need, the mechanics, the points they need to advance their character. Um, so likewise, that also feels like a character that is a work in progress as opposed to a static, you know, character who like gets involved in adventures and then goes back to square one and involved in adventures back to square one until they gain a level. And then they set a new square one. Uh, that does not feel like that's the case in this. Um, it's also for a storyteller uh, who, uh, I see storyteller, listen to me, <laughs> a uh, lore master uh, or DM who enjoys, you know, really improvising scenes and, and doing a lot of role-playing uh, stuff, you know, and and uh, um, helping players who are not familiar with that type of play uh, set goals in social combat scene or social uh, scenes, right? So, so uh, help them frame in a mechanical way what they want to do with the game and what they want to do with those chatty, chatty scenes. That's an enormous amount of fun, you know, and I think that it also, it helps engender skills for uh, players that will translate over into other games as well. So, you know, if the players get in their mind, like, you know, each role that I make in a one ring game in a social encounter, that is to try and achieve a specific thing. Do I want to get information from this person? Do I want to try and convince them to do something? Is it something I want to get from them? You know, what is the what is the actual goal with each of these steps I'm taking? Um, and the way the social encounters work is you you only have so many failures you can get, and that's determined by what that person values, whether they value valor or wisdom more. And the um, the the interesting thing there is that if the players start thinking of it that way, that's a way to to manage, you know, your social encounters in other games as well. You know, I'm for anyone who's ever transitioned a group from a more traditional like D&D, you know, going out bashing bad things and taking their stuff kind of campaign to a mystery campaign, it can often be a rocky transition because you, the skills that you use and the way that you and I mean as the players, the skills and and the way that you approach a problem is very different in a mystery than it is in a, you know, a standard D&D adventure. And sometimes you need to make sure Sometimes, uh, not even sometimes, a lot of times, players have a hard time transitioning from one to the other because it's a different mindset. And this is a good way of helping characters see or players see how they can use that mindset, that goal-oriented mindset in social encounters uh, in a fantasy role-playing game. And that could translate over into your D&D. And then you could make that, um, 
you know that one pillar of the three pillars they talk about in uh, in fifth edition you can make that all the more uh, satisfying because it is a it becomes a game rather than just a uh, a series of random dice rolls that don't really have structure to them so um, and then I guess finally the um, the thing that I really enjoyed the most is seeing the pl- uh, players really get into uh, to actually playing their characters, you know, they're because of the way traits work, because of the way that uh, your re- your uh, blessings and your resources, the cultural blessings, cultural resources work. Um, it feels like the game lends itself very easily to players knowing what they need to play up to make the, that you know for the things that make their characters interesting and uh, and unique and played in a way that is earnest. You know, uh, that is very. Um, I, I did not see, we laughed a lot in, in each of the sessions, you know, uh, but we didn't laugh in the way where people were being silly that disrupted the flavor, you know, and I mean, part of that is, is the, by virtue of the fact that I play with, I'm very, very fortunate to have great players, you know, who get when you can be silly and get when you can, you need to be, you know, in character, but it, um, the game really made it easy for people to be earnest with their characters, which was really, um, satisfying, you know, I, uh, I, I don't necessarily want that to be every game uh, that I run to have that level of, of earnestness, but for that type of game, it's really great. And then that, that level of earnestness and uh, that level of, you know, of affection for your character and for playing that character, I think translates to and, and synchronizes or um, synergizes really nicely with the long-term play of the game because because you care about that character, you care about the the, the journey that the character goes on as they're transformed by their adventures by their you know by the things they they achieve by their things they they don't achieve the things they they fail on the heroes that uh, fall by their side in the course of that stuff i think it would give maybe um some of the it it gives all sorts of reasons for why long-term play with the one ring would be so gratifying and so enjoyable so that's the game. I mean, it is not, uh, I think by, by virtue of me saying what those things are, it helps you understand what it isn't. It isn't Swords and Sorcery. It isn't, you know, Conan. Uh, it isn't, uh, you know, like, um, it, it isn't my, it won't be a replacement for my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, even though there's a lot of similarities. It's a very different game for me. For, than, and I mean, I and I like different flavors. But if you are looking for that type of you know, deep character experience, that kind of Tolkien-esque adventure, and a really clever and satisfying game mechanic, I think the One Ring is something you might want to check out, either in the, my, this whole uh, episode has all been about the first edition, second edition comes out in about two months' time, so um, I, we'll have to see what happens with second edition, but uh, that, you know, as uh, someone who is very familiar with the OSR, um, we... Having new editions of games come out certainly doesn't uh, make the old ones, uh, you know, defunct. So um, you may be able to pick up some uh, first edition uh, One Ring games for or products for quite cheap uh, sometime very soon. So anyway, that is my uh, take on the One Ring. Let's um, end this section here and make with the outro. So that's it. Uh, that's my thoughts on the One Ring. Um, we're getting pretty close to the end of the year, so I'm going to try and think of something to. Uh, uh, to kind of um, mark the uh, the end of the first year of this uh, podcast because uh, we've we've only been going about a year now, but uh, I like marking those milestones. Um, but in the interim, um, if you have any uh, comments, uh, first off, thank you so much for listening to uh, my ramblings about the One Ring. Um, I uh, 
I uh, hope you enjoy this and I hope it's helped you decide whether the game is for you or whether, you know, if you've purchased it already, whether it gives you uh, a reason to go back and look at it again, or if you already love it, you know, whether this is just something that has stoked your enthusiasm for getting that game back to the table. Um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this uh, episode, please don't hesitate to uh, shoot me a voicemail on uh, Anchor. Uh, you can uh, shoot me uh, a tweet on Twitter. Uh, my tweet handle tweet handle twitter handle is uh, dungeon musings at dungeon musings uh, you can also shoot me an email at dungeon musings at gmail.com you can also join us on the dungeon musings discord server i have no idea how to share that uh, link in uh, in an audio podcast but if you go to the dungeon musings youtube channel all of our recent episodes have a uh, link in the description of the video to get you to the dungeon musings discord where you can find all sorts of great people chatting about a bunch of the games that we run and uh, setting up other games uh, and yeah just, uh, and sharing pictures of their dogs so it's a, a really it's proven to be a really fun um, place uh, for uh, for me to interact with a lot of folks who are my players uh, fellow dms uh, listeners things like that so um, anyway, um, until next time then, thanks, uh, thanks again uh, for listening and, uh, until I hear you again, happy gaming.